This evening, I want to talk to you about winning over depression. This is one of those chapters that if you just kind of scan through it, there's so much that you can miss. And I thought what I would do is share a little bit with you of when Becky and I first began pastoring a local congregation. We were not youth pastors, we were pastors, and I wasn't fully prepared for the challenges that I was about to take upon myself. I had never led a board meeting. I had never been in a church as unhealthy as this particular congregation was. Um, the church had gone through a lot of trouble. I had the challenge of preparing new sermons, not only for Sunday and for Wednesday nights, but I was the youth pastor if we were going to have a youth ministry in the church. I was a Sunday school teacher if we were going to have a Sunday school ministry in the church. We, uh, I, that challenge of preparing all of those messages and preparing a worship order because Becky and I were the music ministers of the church. There was a time, believe it or not, when not by, not by might, but not by power, but I actually led the worship, the singing in the church, and Becky playing the piano. I wondered at times if I would run out of ideas for messages because as I sat down and began to work, I was just like, oh my goodness. And the challenges that we were facing were so much bigger than what my life experiences were. But I remembered something my homiletics professor said to us when I was studying for the ministry. He said, if you have a daily devotion, you will never run out of something to share for Christ. Now, let, let me say this. And I read this this week in a Christian magazine, and I thought it was such, such an excellent comment. The purpose of a devotional, when you read the Word of God in the morning, it's not for instruction, and it's not really about inspiration. It's about relation. It's about a growing relationship with Christ. And I found that to be true. My well never ran dry, so to speak, as long as I had my daily devotions. I found the challenge of providing leadership, providing vision for rebuilding a church and persuading others to become a part of a, quote, failed church, giving biblical counsel to people in need, praying with the sick, visiting hospitals, working graciously with difficult people. Because up until that time, everybody had loved Becky and Dennis. And I remember calling my pastor that I had served for so many years, and I said, there are people here that don't like me, you know, and all we're trying to do is help save this church and reach a community for Christ. And uh, he said, welcome to the ministry. I will never forget that. There was discipling new believers that we led to Christ. Becky and I were leading people to Jesus and, and trying to teach others how to lead people to Jesus. Well, there was this process of, of leading them to Christ. There was the day-to-day -day administrative tasks, denominational responsibilities, conducting weddings and funerals and I remember one night my wife just simply collapsed over into my lap and we didn't have children yet and she was weeping and she says how can we do this and that passage of scripture though I never preached from this passage a message like I'm preaching tonight came to me and I said you know we've read it since we were children it's not by might it's not by power but it's by my spirit saith the Lord there was a very difficult building situation. We had leaking roofs, collapsed floors. We met in a basement that was infested with bugs. There was broken HVAC. There was no, it was just a mess that we were dealing with. Plus, there were the lawsuits because the church was going into bankruptcy. I learned so much about trusting God and the work of the Holy Spirit in those days. I learned what I preach Sunday morning. You can trust God with all your tomorrows. Becky and I learned that. You can trust God with all your tomorrows. 
The church was so small that it had tremendous financial problems. And I will tell you, it's still called the Make a Miracle. But understand this tonight. Everything that we learned, today I am still persuaded of what I learned then. It's not by might. It's not by power. It is by my spirit. If God was to pull the plug of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in my life, I wouldn't last a month in ministry. It cannot be done without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's not just my ministry as a pastor. It's the ministry God has called you to. And it's a relational call that God has called us to. Because everybody expects big and flashy. But as we learn tonight, God is not always in the big and flashy. Sometimes you're going to feel like, and this is where you can get depressed, you're going to feel like, goodness, you're going to feel like Peter. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, you're going to sink. You know, you're going to go under the waves. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus, then the waves will become like a marble floor beneath your feet, all because of the word of the Lord and keeping your eyes upon him. Now, that doesn't mean that I didn't have to learn a lot about life management, vision planning, vision casting, leadership development, time management. Doesn't mean I had to learn a lot about finances and legal things. I went to classes at things that I wasn't prepared for in school. I did have to learn all of those things. But it's not skills and it's not cleverness that gives us our success in ministry or in life. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of the most skilled people, some of the greatest leaders that I know are struggling with depression and with burnout for the simple reason they haven't learned how to rely upon what God is going to teach us in Zechariah 4. So I was told this once when I was young. And I believe it. I was in my 20s pastoring. And an elderly pastor came alongside of me that was my older than I am right now. And he came alongside of me and just mentored me, loved me, prayed with me. And he told me, he said, son, you will never burn out for Jesus if you depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. But if you try to do the work for Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit, you will burn out. And so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. This is the fifth vision that we're going to look at from the book of Zechariah. God is going to tell Zechariah the temple is going to be complete. God's people will become a light unto the nations. We saw last week or the week before last when we looked at Zechariah chapter 3, we saw how important it was to experience cleansing from our sins. This week we're going to see what happens to a spirit-filled, cleansed church. What happens to a spirit-filled, cleansed people. Some of these prophecies that are here in this vision will not be fulfilled until the millennium when Israel is, is completely restored in Christ. But you and I can live in the light and in the power of this right now. So let's look at Zechariah chapter 4. It's not a very long chapter. Then the angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now, he asked. And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. And around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. And then I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? What do they mean? Now, I love this. Don't you know? I mean, it's like the angel expected him to already go, don't you know? No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of heaven's armies. 
Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. And then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Can somebody say, come on, victory there? He laid the foundation. He will complete it. Then you will know the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Do not despise the small these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. The seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. And then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand? And what are these two olive branches that pour out golden oil through the two gold tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, he replied. He said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. You could give me a list of your challenges that you've had in your life. You could give me a list like I gave to you of the challenges that we faced in our first church, in our first ministry. And like me, you could probably not only give me a list, but then you could walk through the things that you learned and what God taught you. The only thing that I knew how to do in those days really was to know how to pray. And the Lord here is encouraging Zerubbabel. He says, Zerubbabel, you are facing a mountain of problems. However, in spite of that mountain of problems, you're going to finish this task. How many of you have ever thought, this mountain is so big, I'll never get through it? This mountain is so huge, I will never get through it. I remember when our house flooded and in, in Georgia, and that, when the, we had that big flood back in the 90s, and our house flooded, and, and one of the men from our local church came over, and he just looked at me, and he said, don't worry. And I was like, don't worry. The roofs are collapsed. Everything is ruined. My library was gone. And he says, don't worry. And I'm sitting outside on the steps like, what are we going to do? It was a time of learning. God, if you can stand the pulling, will always pull you through. Zerubbabel's facing a task that he's trying to do. And let's just be honest. I, you know, I'm of that age that these people would have been. They're complaining and they're criticizing young Zerubbabel. Now, this is not Zechariah. They're complaining against Zerubbabel. Because they're comparing the glory of the temple that was destroyed to this new temple that Zerubbabel is trying to build. And he's trying to build it. Remember, as you read this passage, and as you've, if, you, if you've already been through these first three chapters with me, he's trying to build it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. God has commanded this to be rebuilt and the eyes of the Lord upon him. You see, depression usually moves in three stages, blahs, mopes, and burnout. Blahs, mopes, and burnout. Blahs come when you've gone through a period of time in your life, maybe protracted, and you've had no victories. You've, you're living, and you can't point to anything where it looks like God has done anything in your life. And then people come at you with little criticisms. They're not big criticisms, but they're the kind of criticisms I think you ought to know. I think you ought to know. People didn't like this, or people didn't like that. I think... And they begin to criticize, and it just begins to nag at you. And sometimes it can nag at you so much that you just simply skip your daily devotions because you really don't want to spend that time with the Lord. And then that takes us to the mopes. And the mopes are when the criticisms and the difficulties of life, family, marriage, children, finances, it becomes a little sharper, a little more, your health, you know, 
the, the edges become more cutting, more sharp. Your, your disappointments become greater. And then other times when you're in those mopes, people then begin to criticize and say, why are you feeling this way? You should have the victory. You should be on top of things. Somebody said to me one time when I was really sick, says, the Lord has said to you, do not have another surgery. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I just looked at this person and says, you know, that's not a word from the Lord. I just knew inside it wasn't a word of the Lord. He says, the reason you don't know is for, from the word of the Lord, you're demon-possessed. And I was like, <laughs> you know. And so I asked for this person to be kindly removed quickly from my room. You know, sometimes you just have to ignore those kinds of people who think they know it are. Some people, the only thing they know how to do is criticize. Remember, you are never persuasive when you are abrasive. You want to be an encourager. And when you get here, you define yourself by three little words. Those three little words are, poor little me. And we find ourselves becoming, pardon my French, whiny heinies. We find ourselves, we're just feeling so sorry for ourselves. Life is so bad. Poor little me. That then, if it's not rectified at one of these two stages, it leads us to burnout. Remember Elijah? Elijah, who had this powerful ministry, Elijah, who called down fire, prayed down fire from heaven, Elijah, who had the prophets of Baal killed. Then all of a sudden, Jezebel says to him, I am going to, may God do to me what you've done to these prophets. If I don't do the same thing to you, I'm going to flay you alive. I'm going to cut you up. And Elijah, he ran. I mean, it's the fight or flight syndrome. He ran. He ran and he says, Lord, I am no better than my ancestors. Now stop and think about that. I am no better than my ancestors. He's putting himself right up there with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, and King David. I mean, he's just really exalted himself. When you're in that poor little me in that depressed state, sometimes you can just elevate yourself to where you put yourself among the really greats in life. And he says, I would rather you kill me, Lord, than allow Jezebel to kill me. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people. They're in what some theologians call the dark night of the soul, what some psychologists call deep depression, what some people in business call burnout. They come to this place, and they really feel like they would rather die. We prayed for a pastor Sunday morning that because of something that happened, he lost all hope and took his life Sunday morning. My heart has been broken over that this week as we've been praying. Last week, there were two different men that tried to take their lives. We pray for, but former youth pastor was one of those two men. This doesn't include the, the other pastor. The point I'm making to you is we need to be careful about these blahs, these mopes, and these burnout places because if you can't pray your way through them, you need to get professional help. The way Becky and I survived those years in the crucible that prepared us for everything else we've done in our lives, and they were long, hard, arduous years, is because we hung on to the altar, praying together, praying with each other, doing, you know, we talked about it in the Saturday night prayer service, how many decades now we've been doing Saturday night prayer together. Secondly, I want you to see that the gold lampstand is not only a symbol of the Messiah, but it's a symbol of the church. And I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go on. I want you to see that the flowing oil is the symbol of the infinite presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to, this is, this is so fresh. You know, as a pastor, sometimes I've studied so many of these words and these things, I, I think I've got it, you know. 
But somehow or another praying today, I thought, I need to look at that word oil. Well, I know what anointing oil is. I've studied that. I've written a paper on it. I know what the anointing is. I, I preached a whole series of messages on the anointing oil and why we anoint with oil. What I didn't realize is this is a unique word that's used that's not used of the anointing oil. This is fresh oil. This is flowing fresh. This oil is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I found myself slipping out of my study chair at home and getting on my knees and saying, Lord, would you begin to pour fresh oil out upon Woodland Church? Would you pour fresh oil out on me and fresh oil out on all of our families? And here's why. Oil lubricates. What it does is it minimizes the friction and the wear and tear of relationships in life. Oil heals. Oil heals wounded and broken hearts that have been broken by sin and by the sorrows of life. Oil lights. Oil gives us illumination. Oil gives us light for our paths. God's word gives us light and direction in life. Oil warms. People used heating oil to warm their homes. And the Holy Spirit melts our cold hearts that are unresponsive to the gospel and unresponsible to the work of God. Oil invigorates. Remember when uh, the, the, um, the Good Samaritan poured the oil and the wine into the, to the wounds of the, of the wounded man that Jesus talked about, oil adorns. In the Old Testament, now we would never do this today, but in the Old Testament, people anointed themselves with oil as a sign of joy. And remember when Jesus said, when you're fasting, don't go around looking like, oh, poor me, I'm so hungry, I'm fasting for God. He goes, brush your hair, put a little oil on, make your face shine, you know. It's a sign of joy. And then oil polishes, it smooths off the rough edges of our life. I'm not a mechanic, but I know that I've got to keep plenty of fresh, clean oil in my car for it to work right. Those two trees that you see in the vision, they represent the priestly and the kingly ministry. One is Yeshua, one is Zerubbabel, but they're both fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the mountain represents the rubble of Jerusalem. And then the two anointed ones, as I just said, are Yeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel. So let's break this out and see what this means for us and how it helps us conquer depression and burnout. Number one, God's light shines through his church. God's light shines through his church. You've got to remember this. And when I say his church, I'm referring to you tonight as an individual as well as us as a congregation. What motivates us is because the work of God is so important. Would you look at me just a second? We don't come to church to consume. We come to church to, to learn, to be inspired, for relationship so that we can be equipped to minister. And a part of what's wrong with the Western church today is, and you remember our district superintendent referred to this in the pulpit, is that the Western churches, they want to be comforted while the churches in the third world that are suffering for their faith, they're praying that God would give them grace and strength to suffer and to bear witness for Jesus Christ despite the pain that they face. We are a lampstand. The book of Revelation makes that very clear. I'll try to point that out to you in just a few minutes. But what does a lampstand do? It shines light. We shine as a congregation. We shine as individuals. Now, friends, this is huge. Now, think for just a moment. We are a lampstand. And where are we planted? We are planted in a world that Jesus said loves darkness more than it loves light. I'm under no illusions. I'm thankful for the friendships and the relationships that I have wherever I go. But I know that this world loves darkness more than it loves light. 
I've been a pastor long enough to know that sometimes there are people in the church that love darkness more than they love light. I'm glad they come to church, but they're struggling with areas in their life. Let me read you these three verses here. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, this is from the book of Revelation, I saw seven gold lampstands. Now, we've been through this two times at Woodland. Those lampstands are the church. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. So the church, the body of Christ, is the lampstand. Jesus is there. And then when we look at it individually, each local church is a lampstand. Look at the next verse. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Look at, they're blinded, they're unable to see, and they don't understand. The only way that such people can see the light of the gospel is if God makes the light shine in their hearts and he chooses to do that through his people, the church. So our task then is to be a lampstand. Look at this next verse. God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts. Underline that, made this light shine in our hearts. So that we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Underline the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. We now have this light shining in our hearts. But we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Underline this light shining in our hearts. And this makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. So why does God put this light inside of your heart? Why do we teach our children to sing? I bet you know this song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I bet you know this song, hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus puts his light in our hearts so that it can shine so that the unbelieving world has the opportunity to see the gospel of Jesus. Now, I used to have one, and whenever we go back to Israel, I plan on getting several. But those little, remember those earthen clay vessels? They were little earthen lamps. They were very fragile. When our house got flooded, I lost them. I had them on a display. Those little lamps were inex so inexpensive that everybody could buy one. They were small, but you filled them with oil. You had a little wick in it. And it burned brightly. That's how people heated their homes if they were, uh, not heated, but lit their homes if they were not wealthy to own the big uh, candlesticks and candelabras or menorahs like some people had in their homes. So let's look at the challenges then that Zerubbabel faces and that we face. We will all face mountains. We will all face mountains. Zerubbabel had a mountain of rubble that he had to remove to be able to build. Zerubbabel had opposition from enemies without. We know this from the book of Haggai. We know this from the book of Nehemiah. He had opposition from people that were Jews within because they were spiritually lethargic. They were backsliding. They had given up on the project. That's why God sent Zechariah to preach revival to them. 
God says to Zerubbabel, he says, Zerubbabel, don't give up. This mountain will become a plain. I'm going to level this out for you. And he says, Zerubbabel, you're going to complete it. And these people that are criticizing you now, they're going to go, may God bless it, may God bless it, may God bless it. Now, in the South, if somebody looks at you and goes, well, God bless your little heart, they're really telling you, you're pretty stupid. I can say that because Becky's not in here. That's what they're saying to you. You know, you're just pretty dumb. And sometimes you can hear them, God bless their little hearts. I can just, I can hear my mama saying that sometime, you know. But this is, a, this is a time where people join together and they go, may God bless what has happened. May God bless what has happened. Because God will work even in your critics' hearts if you do what we talked about Sunday morning. God will take care of your tomorrows if you don't try to take vengeance upon them. Nothing, look at Zechariah 4, 7. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. Now, underline that phrase, it will become. Because that's really an interesting phrase to me. It will become. God didn't remove that mountain immediately. This building project had already been going on for 20 years. It had already been. It's going to take four more years to complete it. And the walls that are supposed to be built around Jerusalem, it's going to take a hundred more years to complete those walls. Okay? Zerubbabel will not live to see the walls completed. The point I'm making here is sometimes you will encounter a mountain of problems, and for whatever the reason, God doesn't remove them immediately. And when God doesn't remove them immediately, you don't become mopey. You don't become blah. You keep your eyes on Jesus, because if you become blah and mopey about it, and you listen to the criticisms of the people, you will burn out, and you will not finish. You will become depressed, and you will give up. You will become bitter, and maybe even give up on serving God. You must remain faithful. That's the reason that I wanted to use that little line I read in that Christian magazine this week, that it's not about having a daily devotion for information or even inspiration. It's about building a relationship with God. Sometimes Becky and I spend times talking together that's not particularly inspiring, but it builds our relationship. Remember those times when she said to me, we need to talk. I can promise you that's not inspirational. It may be informational, but it's not inspirational. But it is relational, and it builds our lives, and it builds our homes together. You see, what happens is we live in a world that expects shortcuts. Somebody asked me this just recently. They said, Pastor, how have you come to understand the Bible? And they were complimenting me. I said, listen, I've spent my whole life studying the Word of God. And some people expect to understand the Word of the Lord without studying the Word of God. But we prayerfully, daily study the Word of God every day. Some people want an experience. I've been in numbers of churches where there is no Bible study, there is no discipleship, and they're hoping that there's going to be something that they get zapped from God, they're going to experience something and fall on the floor, and they're going to rise up totally and differently changed. If that was true, we wouldn't have a need of teen challenge or life challenge. We wouldn't have a need of recovery ministries because sometimes God lets us go through the process. And then there are people that want a perfect church without having to go through the difficulties. Years ago, I had somebody come to me, and they says, you know, I, I've got to find another church. And I said, why? And they said, well, I heard some grumbling from some people today. And I go, okay. 
I said, uh, when you find that church where people don't grumble, please come let me know because I'm going to resign and I'm going to go join that church with you. <laughs> they've never found that church, by the way. And they've become good friends and have come back. You see, that's not how God works. Sometimes God has a reason for allowing you to walk through the issues. And progress can seem very, very slow. I bet you Zerubbabel thought at times, this is never going to get done. It's never going to get done. Have you ever felt that way? It's never going to get done. I mean, Zerubbabel is the one who laid the, look at uh, verse 9. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know the Lord of heaven's army has sent me. That had to be encouraging to Zerubbabel. That had to be so encouraging to him to hear the word of the Lord say, you're going to finish this. It may be a 24, 25-year project, but you're going to finish this. I know that would encourage me. I mean, think about Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham. When God was late in fulfilling his promise, according to what Abraham and Sarah thought, they took matters into their own hands that they later came to regret. Isaac, you know, he got anxious. Jacob got anxious. Jacob worked 20 years for his wives, you know, his two wives, you know. You could go on. These stories that go through where God takes so long, it seems, in the Bible. I mean, after the book of Malachi, we have that intertestamental period of 400 years where the only word from the Lord was the red word of God that took place in the synagogue or people that read the word because 400 years it's called by biblical scholars the 400 years of silence until John the Baptist begins to preach. Why? I'll tell you, if you're going to be prepared to raise a family, if you're going to be prepared to have a strong, healthy marriage, if you're going to be prepared to build a business, if you're going to be prepared to pastor a church, lead a small group, you've got to prepare for the long haul. Now, from my perspective, people that you've discipled, they get transferred and they move. People that you've mentored, they get transferred and they move. When we were building the school, I'd get a teacher trained and her husband would get a better job offer and they'd leave town. Then I'd have to hire another. Do you know how much it takes to train and hire a teacher and get them in where parents trust them and children trust them? You know, you get, a, you get somebody trained for a, a, a job as a janitor because you've got to keep those floors clean. You've got to keep that place spick and span because babies are crawling around on that floor all the time. And, and so we paid extra well to be sure we got the best of help. And, you know, then all of a sudden, you know, you're just so happy for him, but he gets a great job somewhere else, and you start over. I mean, stuff happens. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Stuff happens. Dr. James Dobson said something one time that really wrangled a light in Becky in my heart when he said, you know, don't lose each other while you're raising your children. He said, if you do, when they grow up and leave home, you'll look across the table at a complete stranger. And so we focused on keeping our marriage strong. I have never reached a place in ministry where I've said that it's all done. Something else, sometimes our ministry seems insignificant. Remember I said the old timers were weeping? Sometimes you look at what you're doing, you go, why does it have to be this way? I mean, there's the great Persian empire that they've just left. Now, look at me for just a moment. Think through this carefully. They have left the great Persian Empire. It is the United States of its day without collapsing highways and without collapsing bridges. 
It is a glorious sight. It's one of the ancient wonders of the world. They leave that, they come to this place of rubble called Jerusalem, and they've got to build from this rubble. Don't you think that must have sounded insignificant? They're going to build this little insignificant temple, and the Lord says, do not despise these small beginnings. Teaching children, working in a small group, coming to a work day at Woodland to help with the gardens and the yards, taking a guest out to dinner, sharing Christ with their neighbor. Sometimes these can seem like really insignificant things, but they're important things. They're important to our lives. It's a part of the light of God shining through us, doing our jobs well, whether anybody else recognizes our job. I took 30-something missionaries to the Ford plant for our missions retreat a couple of years ago. And I remember standing, this is before COVID, and I remember standing there watching those workers, and I just had this thought, pray for these guys, because I could see them down the line working on these trucks at the Rouge plant. And I said, Lord, help them to know that what they do is significant. Help them to know what they do is important. They were all doing the same thing all day. That would have driven me bananas, you know, doing the same thing every day. And somebody said to me, well, they're well paid for it. Listen, it doesn't matter. You want to know that you're your ministry, your work has significance. And significance isn't always found in a paycheck. What I've learned from this chapter is those days of small beginnings, our ministry, God delights in them. Our ministry is God's delight. Small is great if God's hand is upon it. Small is great if God's hand is upon it. Do not despise, verse 10, these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begun, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. Would you circle that phrase, the Lord rejoices to see the work begin? Ruth, God rejoices when you do your work as unto the Lord. Now think about that. God rejoices when you do your work as unto the Lord. If you're committed to doing your work as unto the Lord and reaching people for Christ, God rejoices in you and God delights in you. Jesus said that through this kind of work, he will build his church. So the church will prevail. And, and, and you say, how do you know? Because Zechariah 4.14, look at that little phrase, the Lord of all the earth. He is the Lord of Ukraine. He is the Lord of the entire earth. And everything in the temple, everything that Zechariah was building, excuse me, Zerubbabel was building, everything in that temple pointed to God. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what we're doing points people to Jesus Christ. And Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then if you'll look at this next passage, and they sang a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll, break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood is ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Who is this happening with? This is happening through the body of Christ. These people are reached as the Holy Spirit works through the church. This is why Jesus said, you are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. So finally tonight, this, this whole chapter, and this is the reason this passage was upon the masthead of everything that Becky and I saw as children growing up in church. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You see it in the symbolism of the olive trees. Remember what I told you? When I looked up that word for oil, it was fresh oil. It wasn't the anointing oil that was used upon the priest. It was the fresh oil. This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It's not by force nor by strength, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. G. Campbell Morgan said there's two ways to work for God. Campbell Morgan was a great pastor in England, tremendous preacher in the 1800s. Two ways to work for God, might and power. And he says might and power is human energy and the resoluteness that human beings bring to what they do. I was speaking for a very large church, <clears throat> very, what's called a mega church. The pastor and I became friends through the years. I preached for him once a year. One day he sent me down in his office and he told me, he says, I think I'm in a depression. And I go, why? And he begins to list all of the challenges, the responsibilities. And he looked at me and he says, Dennis, there are sometimes I just want to die. I asked the Lord to take me. And we prayed together. The more that we reflected and we corresponded and we talked back and forth, if there's anything that I think that I learned from that, he experienced all of these three conditions that I opened with. Blahs, mopes, and then burnout. Building a large, successful church, building multiple campuses that were huge and expensive, building in a city that was violently opposed to what they were doing. He, was, he had gone from this place where one day he admitted, he says, I don't have a daily devotion. All I have time to do is prepare a sermon anymore. You cannot afford to live like that. Anyone who builds on that foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.12 says, may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. What's he saying? If you build with wood, hay, or stubble, as the King James Version says, it's going to burn up. But if you build works that are meant to glorify the Lord, if you build in the Spirit, it will survive. The second way, Campbell Morgan says, is by my Spirit. He said, by my Spirit means you'll still have toil, you'll still have care. And I've thought about what Campbell Morgan said. By my spirit means you'll still have toil, you'll still have care, but you will experience the motivating, energizing, renewing power and presence of the Holy Spirit in your life because you're consciously depending upon Him and not your skill, not your toil, not your labor. You know that the fruitfulness and the result comes from God. That's what Zechariah is getting at. That's what the word of the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you can't do this in your own might. You've been at this for 20 years. But uh, four more years, this will be finished. Paul wrote these words, and we're going to wrap this up and have a little bit of a Q&A time. Let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? In other words, by your good works? Of course not. You receive the Spirit because you believe the message you heard about Christ. Now, circle that word, believe. There's no work. There's no toil. You just believe in God. Remember, because Abraham believed God, he was called the friend of God. He wasn't perfect, but he was still called the friend of God. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Let me come back to the oil. My grandmother's house was heated with wood, cooked with wood, and lit with oil lamps. I could smell those kerosene lamps. I can just, it's clear, I can see her coming into the bedrooms at night to check on us, carrying those oil lamps around, getting up early in the morning, those oil lamps burning. Still smell that. 
But the light came not from the wick. The light came because the wick was saturated with the kerosene. And if you turned the wick down where you cut off its supply, the light went out. Friends, we have to be saturated with the Holy Spirit. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. The good deeds shine because of the Holy Spirit. A woman one time asked D.L. Moody, she says, why do you keep insisting that people have to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You can't preach a message without saying people have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked at her and he says, it's very simple, ma'am. I leak. I've got news for you. You leak and I leak too. We daily need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for this powerful passage tonight from Zechariah 4. We ask you to bless our friends that have joined with us online tonight. We ask you to bless those that are here this evening. And I pray for fresh oil from heaven to be poured out upon our lives. For it's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen, amen, and amen. Good night. God bless you.